0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bad Teacher, where I share cases of educators who committed newsworthy crimes. This time I'll tell you a story about a school administrator who was highly respected in his community as a person who cared greatly for his students. But a past history of rocky relationships, infidelity, and claims of domestic violence would all be brought to bear when he was accused of a heinous and gruesome crime. This is the second chapter in the series, Bad Teacher, the case of Vincent Edward Brothers. It was the 4th of July weekend, 2003, in Bakersfield, California. Bakersfield, the largest city in Kern County, is known for its agricultural and oil production. Situated well inland in California's Central Valley, Bakersfield summers can be oppressively hot, but that did not deter the Harper family from enjoying Independence Day festivities. Joni Harper and her three children were visiting her good friend, Michelle Baptiste, who invited them over for a barbecue. The weather didn't cool down until well after sunset, and Joni had spent an enjoyable evening having dinner and watching fireworks. The women sat chatting in the backyard until almost 11 p.m. By then, Joni's children, Marquez, age four, and Lindsay Michelle, age two, had dozed off, or nearly so. Her six-week-old baby, Marshall, had long since fallen asleep. Joni scooped up her three kids, and with the help of her friend, placed the sleepy children into their car seats for the short drive to 901 Third Street, the home she shared with her mother, Ernestine. The following day, Saturday, was fairly uneventful for the Harper family. One bright spot in the day was when Joni's 14-year-old stepdaughter, Margaret, came over to visit. Margaret loved having three half-siblings and had fallen in love with six-week-old Marshall. Joni had become friendly with Margaret's mother, Shan Kern. Vincent Brothers, Joni's husband— had met Shan years earlier when they were both students at California State University, Bakersfield. They had a child together, Margaret, who was born in 1988, but the couple never married and the relationship ended when Margaret was still a baby. While Margaret and Shan were visiting with the Harpers, Joni asked about her stepdaughter's recent junior high school graduation. Shan described the day's events. Joni asked if she'd taken any pictures of Margaret with her father at the graduation. Shan was confused for a moment and said that Vincent had not attended. Now it was Joni's turn to be confused, but only momentarily. She then became angry. Once again, her husband had lied to her. He had been away from home in June, telling Joni that he was attending his daughter's graduation. Joni was angry, but not surprised. Vincent Brothers' frequent lies and unexplained disappearances was a big reason for their on-again, off-again relationship, and had contributed to their recent breakup. Joni had moved out of Vincent's home and in with her mother in April, just weeks before she gave birth to their third child, Marshall. Vincent was out of town that 4th of July weekend, visiting family in Ohio. Joni told Shan that she planned to call her husband to confront him about this newly discovered deception. The next day was Sunday, and like every Sunday, Joni and her mother Ernestine attended church. Today would be special, however, since it was the first time Joni would be taking baby Marshall with her to meet the congregation. Everyone had been asking to see the newborn, and she couldn't wait to show him off. Ernestine helped Joni get her grandchildren ready in their Sunday best. The family spent the morning together in church. Afterward, the Harpers met friends for lunch at Black Angus Restaurant. After lunch, as was their routine, Joni and Ernestine returned home to rest. They would all lie down for a nap before returning to the church for the evening service. But the Harpers did not return to church that evening. This was odd, people thought, but they figured with a newborn, it may have just been too much for Joni to handle that Sunday. Perhaps she just decided to stay home and rest after a long holiday weekend. Ernestine also faithfully attended church, so her absence was also noted. But Ernestine and her daughter were very close, and she was also a devoted grandmother. It was assumed that Ernestine had probably decided to stay home as well and help Joni with the children. But by Tuesday, when no one had seen or heard from either Joni or Ernestine, concern began to grow. Friends and family had repeatedly phoned Ernestine's house, but no one had picked up. So by 7 a.m. on Tuesday morning, Joni's friend, Kelsey Spann, was knocking on her door. There was no answer. Hearing no sounds from inside, She walked around to the side of the house where she found the patio door unlocked. This was also strange, she thought. Letting herself in, Kelsey walked down a hallway, calling to Ernestine and Joni as she did so. She was stopped in her tracks by a body lying in the hallway. It was Ernestine, and she was clearly dead. Running to Joni's room at the other end of the house, she peered in and saw a horrific scene. She called 911 in a panic. (laughs) When police arrived and searched the house, they, like Kelsey, found Ernestine Harper's body first. She was lying in the hallway and had been shot at close range in the face. Then they entered a bedroom belonging to Joni. There they discovered Joni's body lying on the bed. She was found face down, shot multiple times in the head, chest, and back. Four-year-old Marquez and two-year-old Lindsay were lying near their mother on the bed, their bodies covered with pillows and sheets. Lindsay's body was at the foot of the bed, lying on her side. She was killed with a single gunshot wound to the back. Marquez was beside Joni. His eyes were open, and he had been shot once in the right side of the head. The newborn Marshall, at first, was not found. He was discovered underneath a pillow next to Joni. The baby had been shot in the back. Besides being shot, Joni had also been stabbed several times in the back. Ernestine, it was believed, had been awoken from her nap by the sound of gunshots or had heard someone enter the house. She had then grabbed a gun and entered the hallway with it in her hand when she was shot. The gun was lying near her body. She had not had time to fire the weapon. When the brutal murders of the two women and three children, including a newborn, were reported, the Bakersfield community was shocked and horrified. Who would commit such a horrible, senseless crime? And for what reason? Detectives first called to the crime scene noticed that the women's purses had been overturned and some items in the home rifled through. However, not much had been taken besides some cash. No large items were missing from the home, and it did not appear that a thorough search for valuables had been conducted investigators right away thought the crime scene had been staged to look like a robbery gone wrong. When women are murdered, the first suspect investigated is usually the spouse or romantic partner. Detectives right away began hearing stories from those they questioned about Joni Harper's rocky relationship with her estranged husband, Vincent Brothers. But Vincent Brothers had been out of town since the previous Wednesday, when he'd flown to Ohio to visit relatives. He would have to be tracked down to be questioned. Detectives, upon viewing the crime scene and talking to witnesses, immediately considered Brothers a person of interest. Community members and colleagues of Brothers were surprised to learn that he was a suspect in the cold blooded murder of his entire family. Brothers, to all outward appearances, was a well respected professional and active member of the Bakersfield community. 41 year old Vincent Brothers was a longtime employee of the Bakersfield City School District and currently in the position as vice principal of John C. Fremont Elementary School. But detectives would soon discover that brothers had another side to him that he didn't show to the outside world. Only the women who'd been in his life, and there had been many, were aware of his darker side. Vincent Edward Brothers was born on May 31, 1962, and was raised in Long Island, New York. He was one of 10 children he attended norfolk university a historically black college in norfolk virginia after graduating he joined the marine reserves brothers then relocated to california to pursue a master's degree in education at california state university bakersfield he began working for the bakersfield city school district brothers was well liked and respected as an educator who went above and beyond for his students he made it his mission to mentor students who were troubled And doing poorly in school. Brothers even walked students home after school so he could spend time talking to them and learning about their challenges. Students and parents were grateful for the mentorship provided by Brothers, who encouraged all his students to do their best. He soon rose in the ranks in the school district, being offered a position as vice principal at Emerson Middle School. While a student at CSU Bakersfield, Brothers met Shan Kern and they began dating. But a pattern in his relationships began to emerge brothers, his exes would report, was very charming when they first met. More than one of his exes said that they had first been impressed upon meeting brothers for his commitment to his job, his work ethic, and his heart for troubled kids. But once brothers had won the heart of a woman, he became more distant and would then disappear altogether, sometimes for days at a time. He didn't inform his partners about his planned absences, could not be reached while he was gone, and would entertain no questions about where he'd been once he returned. As you can imagine, this did not go over very well. Brothers moved in with Shan Kern after their romance blossomed in college. In 1988, Shan discovered she was pregnant. During her pregnancy and after she gave birth to their daughter Margaret, Brothers repeatedly left his girlfriend and daughter for days at a time. Shan discovered that he was seeing other women. In June of 1988, Shan confronted her boyfriend about his disappearances and infidelity. According to Shan, upon being questioned, brothers turned on her instantly. It was like he became another person, Shan was quoted as saying. He grew enraged and began beating her. She pressed charges, and brothers was convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence. He was given a six-day jail sentence and placed on probation. Their relationship ended. Not long afterward, brothers met Angela Richardson. And they were soon married. This first marriage ended in divorce in 1990. By 1992, Brothers was on his second marriage in as many years. Sharon Bernard was only married to Brothers for four months before she filed for both a divorce and a restraining order. Bernard would allege that Brothers was violent towards her and had threatened to kill her. While Brothers' love life wasn't going very well, his professional life thrived. By the mid-90s, he held the position of middle school principal at Emerson Middle School and was very popular with the students. A longtime friend of Brothers told Dateline, Kids gravitated to Brothers like you wouldn't believe. They'd run out like he was the ice cream man. They loved him. Then Vincent Brothers met Joan Harper. Joni, formerly a high school star athlete, met Brothers while working as a supervisor for the school district. She also officiated high school and college basketball games. Joni also had a passion for working with troubled kids, and this shared cause brought her and Vincent together. She and Vincent brothers were soon a couple and made a good team. Both were active in the community and dedicated to helping children and families. Joni was described as smart, kind, and with a heart of gold. Joni's mother, Ernestine Harper, was the mother of five. Two of her sons, Robert and Eddie Harper, were both church ministers. Ernestine worked for the Rafer Johnson Community Day School in Bakersfield. Ernestine was a well-known figure in Bakersfield's African-American community. She was very active in church activities and had recently traveled to Africa on a missionary trip to feed the poor. Ernestine also poured her energy into other causes, most notably civil rights and prison reform. Ernestine worked tirelessly to help those who she believed had been unjustly imprisoned. One of her successes in this area was organizing an effort to defend Alfred Rollins, who'd been convicted of killing his former girlfriend and sentenced to 29 years to life in a California Youth Authority facility. Rollins, a Wasco High School track star and Olympic hopeful, was accused of shooting and killing 17-year-old Maria Madera Rodriguez and dumping her body in a canal near Lost Hills, California. Rollins, who was African-American, had been tried in front of 11 white jurors and one Hispanic juror four African-American jurors in the jury pool were all dismissed. Rollins' supporters, including Ernestine Harper, believed him innocent and worked for his release, arguing that he'd received an unfair trial. After serving three years in prison, Rollins was granted a new trial due to jury misconduct. His second trial corrected mistakes made by prosecutors in the first conviction and led to a hung jury. The state eventually elected to drop the charges, and Rollins was released in 1996. Joni, who was very close to her family, especially her mother, was excited to introduce brothers, the new man in her life, to them. According to her brother, Eddie, Joni said that Vincent was, quote, the love of her life, unquote. In 1998, Joni became pregnant with Vincent's child. While she was expecting the baby, Vincent reverted to old patterns and Joni sometimes wouldn't hear from him for several days. She began hearing rumors that he was seeing other women. She still loved him and believed he loved her. So without knowing that brothers had a history of such behavior, Joni held out hope that he was just going through a phase and things would be sorted out once the baby was born. But when Marquez Harper brothers was born in 1998, Vincent was once again absent and didn't attend his child's birth. Joni, from a close-knit family, wanted the same for her son, so she gave Vincent a chance. Eventually he came around and soon asked Joni to marry him. They were married in January of 2000. It was a simple courthouse wedding, and Marquez was already over a year old, but Joni was hopeful that her child would now be raised in an intact family. But it wasn't to be. A month after the wedding, Joni filed for an annulment. She had discovered that not only was her new husband cheating on her, but that he'd already been married twice before and hadn't disclosed this information to her. She told friends that she felt hurt, disappointed, and betrayed. Joni and Vincent continued to have an on-and-off relationship, with Joni taking him back and Vincent promising things would be different this time. Before long, he began disappearing again and seeing other women behind her back. In 2001, Joni was pregnant once more and gave birth to their daughter, Lindsay Michelle. Brothers was also not present for the birth of his daughter. After Lindsay's birth, the couple tried to make a real attempt to keep their family together. Vincent agreed to work on the marriage and entered into a study program with their minister. In January of 2003, Vincent and Joni got remarried in Las Vegas. Joni was pregnant with the couple's third child at that time. Her friend Kelsey reported that Joni seemed upset when she learned of the pregnancy, but she decided to remarry Vincent. Their second son, Marshall, was born just four months after their second wedding. It was the first birth of one of his children that Vincent was around to witness. But even though Vincent Brothers was there for his child's entrance into the world, he had already exited his relationship once again. Brothers had moved out in April. According to him, this was due to an argument he'd had with his mother in law, Ernestine. Joni began to press her estranged husband to provide support for his children. Joni had filed for and been granted sole custody of their oldest two children after their first marriage was annulled. Brothers showed up occasionally to help Joni. When Joni moved in with the children to her mother's house, he helped with some painting and pulling up old carpeting, but he wasn't consistently seeing the children or providing for them financially. That summer, Joni told brothers she would file legal papers to force him to pay child support if he didn't begin helping out more consistently. Apparently, brothers became angry upon being threatened with legal action because Joni told a friend she was afraid he quote might try and get rid of me. After discovering five members of the Harper family murdered in their Bakersfield home, investigators learned about Joni Harper's estranged relationship with her husband, Vincent Brothers, and sought him out for questioning. They learned that Brothers was out of town on a planned trip to visit family in Columbus, Ohio. On Wednesday, July 2nd, he had flown out of Bakersfield. Video surveillance captured an image of Brothers arriving at Columbus Airport. He then rented a car, a blue Dodge Neon, that he drove to his brother Melvin's home in Columbus. Vincent and Melvin had not seen one another for over a decade. But by the time investigators attempted to reach him after the murders were discovered on July 8th, brothers had already left Ohio, driving with Melvin to Elizabeth City, North Carolina to visit their mother, Margaret. The FBI had been brought in to search for brothers and they contacted Margaret to relay the news of her daughter-in-law and grandchildren's murders. Once brothers arrived in North Carolina, his mother informed him of the murders. He became hysterical, according to Margaret. She then told him that investigators were on their way from California to question him. When contacted by North Carolina police, he agreed to come in the next day to be interviewed. But when the detectives arrived, he refused to speak to them. He informed them that he'd hired an attorney from California to represent him. With his attorney in attendance, brothers finally met with police for a short interview. One thing that detectives noted and thought strange was that after Brothers was informed of his wife and children's murders, he contacted his school district, but did not call police to speak with them or get any information. Police, however, had no solid evidence that Brothers was involved in the murders, only their suspicions. Vincent was free to go, but investigators decided to do a bit more digging into Mr. Brothers' background and his alibi. detectives suspected that Vincent Brothers may have had a hand in the murder of his wife, mother-in-law, and three children. They based this on his behavior during his marriage. He often disappeared, was a serial adulterer, was estranged from his wife, and she had threatened to sue for child support at the time of her murder. They also uncovered Brothers' history of violence against women. The arrest in 1988 for domestic violence against his first child's mother, Shan Kern, was discovered as was the restraining order filed by his second wife, Sharon Bernard. And there was another complaint against Brothers by a woman. This one dated during the time he served as vice principal at Emerson Middle School. A woman who was an employee of the school accused Brothers of sexual harassment. In 1996, the woman claimed she'd been subjected to unwanted touching by Brothers in the school office. One day, Brothers had shown up at her house and dragged her into the bedroom. He hit her and tried to take pictures of her, she reported. When she'd run to the phone to call the police, he had pulled it out of her hand. She was able to run out of the house and drive away. She had gone to the police to report the assault, but the woman said she was discouraged from filing charges. She reported that the police lieutenant she'd spoken to had asked her to think about it, pointing out that the accused was, quote, a role model in the community. Upset and discouraged, she left without filing a formal complaint, thinking that her report would be ignored by the police or that they would side with Brothers. However, she did file a report about the incident with the school district. The report also alleged that after the incident, Brothers called her home and threatened her. She ended up taking a leave of absence due to the harassment. School district administrators spoke with Brothers about the incident, but he denied that it happened. His superiors then warned him that his career could be in jeopardy if the allegations were true. He was not formally disciplined, but was transferred to another school, John C. Fremont Elementary. He kept the position of vice principal. Investigators believed that Vincent Brothers was their strongest suspect in the quintuple murder in Bakersfield. The crime scene, to their trained eyes, appeared staged. If someone had come to rob the house... Why not do it while the family was away? The house had been empty all morning while the Harpers were at church. Why would an intruder wait until the house was full of people? There was also clues that suggested the murders were personal. Joni had been shot multiple times as she slept. The young mother had also been stabbed after being shot, which was considered overkill. Someone trying to neutralize a person to rob them would not have taken the time to brutalize the victim in such a way, according to experts. And why kill innocent children who were no threat? Finally, the fact that the children's bodies had been covered with sheets and blankets is something that typically only happens when the victim is known to the killer, according to crime scene analysts. At the crime scene, detectives discovered a portion of a latex glove under the overturned purse belonging to Joni Harper. They tested it for DNA, and it was a match to Vincent Brothers'. Bakersfield detectives believed that by telling everyone he was going to be out of town on the July 4th weekend, brothers had pre-planned his alibi. But they also believed that he had been able to return to Bakersfield to murder his family without being discovered. Now they just had to prove it. Detectives, trying to determine exactly where Vincent Brothers had been after leaving Bakersfield on July 2nd, pulled his bank and credit card records. They discovered credit card charges over the 4th of July weekend, placing brothers in and around Columbus, Ohio. However, when they viewed security camera footage from these establishments, they found that the credit cards had been presented for purchases not by Vincent Brothers, but by his brother Melvin. Calls from Brothers' cell phone also placed him in Ohio on the day of the murders. But detectives theorized that Brothers had given both his cell phone and credit cards to his brother to use that weekend in order to solidify his alibi that he had been in Ohio the entire week. In their investigation, detectives also learned that Brothers rented a car upon arriving in Ohio. It was a new blue Dodge Neon with very few miles on it when he picked it up. But when investigators retrieved the records from the rental car agency, they discovered that Brothers had put over 5,000 miles on the vehicle, more than enough to travel from Columbus, Ohio, to Bakersfield and back. But how could they prove that even if Brothers had driven over 5,000 miles that weekend, that it had been to Bakersfield? For that, they consulted an entomologist. Lynn Kimsey, a professor of entomology at the University of California, Davis, analyzed, get this the bugs found splattered in the Dodge Neon's grill and radiator. The car was new and only driven for any significant length of time by Vincent Brothers. Kimsey was able to determine that the insects found on the car were consistent only with species found west of the Rocky Mountains, too far west to be Ohio bugs. Further, she concluded that the particular insects found on the car could be pinpointed to a certain region local to two major routes to get from the eastern United States to California. Finally, after conducting extensive interviews with Melvin and Troy brothers, they got them to admit that after Friday, July 4th, they had not seen their brother Vincent again until Monday. Armed with this evidence, a warrant for Vincent Brothers' arrest was issued on April 30th, 2004, nine months after the murders. He had returned to California voluntarily where the school district had put him on unpaid leave until the murder investigation was completed. Investigators moved to arrest brothers as quickly as possible. They believed he was planning to flee the area after they discovered he had been selling off his belongings and had placed his house on the market. He was arrested and held without bail. After a series of lengthy delays, Vincent Brothers' trial began in 2007. It would be the biggest trial in Bakersfield history in decades. Almost 140 witnesses were called to testify. The prosecution laid out their theory of the case. They opened by describing Brothers' past history of violence against his previous partners, his rocky relationship with Joni Harper, and his history of extramarital affairs. The motive for the murders, the prosecution said, was that Brothers wanted to be free of the financial burden of providing for three children. A friend of Joni's testified that Joni had told her she'd informed Brothers just before her murder that she was filing for full custody of all the children and taking him to court for child support. As to how Vincent Brothers pulled off the annihilation of his family, the state provided the following timeline. On Wednesday, July 2nd, 2003, Brothers flew from Bakersfield to Columbus, Ohio. There he rented the Dodge Neon. Leaving his credit cards and cell phone with his brothers to make it seem he was still in Ohio, he left the state on Thursday, July 3rd or Friday, July 4th. He drove approximately 2,000 miles west to Bakersfield, California, stopping only at small service stations for gas that did not employ security cameras and paying with cash. He arrived in Bakersfield on Sunday, July 8th. Knowing his wife and mother-in-law's routine of going to church on Sunday morning and then arriving home to nap, he took the opportunity to enter the home through the side door while the family was sleeping. Entering Joni's bedroom first, he shot and killed her. He then turned the weapon on four-year-old Marquez. Hearing the shots, Ernestine awoke and reached for her gun. As she moved down the hallway towards her daughter's bedroom, she was shot and killed by brothers. He then returned to the room and shot two-year-old Lindsay and six-week-old Marshall. Then he went to the kitchen to grab a knife returning to the bedroom to stab his dead or dying wife in the back several times. Before leaving the room, he covered his murdered children with sheets, blankets, and pillows. He wore gloves while committing the crime and had left a piece behind with his DNA inside. Brothers overturned the women's purses and rifled through drawers and cabinets to make it look like a robbery, and then fled. By Monday, July seventh, he was back in Ohio. He returned the Dodge Neon to the rental company adding over 5,400 miles on the car's odometer. He then left the state with his brother, arriving at his mother's house in North Carolina on Tuesday, July 8th, the same day his family's murders were discovered. The defense argued that there was no way Vincent Brothers had enough time to drive from Ohio to California, commit the murders, and then return to Ohio in the time frame the prosecution suggested. The glove material with Brother's DNA, the defense explained, was left behind when Brothers was doing repair work for Ernestine at her home. Brothers said that because he had been diagnosed with belly fever, Ernestine had given him a mask and gloves to wear for protection. The defense also pointed out that there was no forensic proof that Brothers had been the murderer, nor were the murder weapons ever found. And why was his brother using his credit card in Ohio? Well, that wasn't to provide an alibi, the defense told the jury. It was simply one brother helping another out. But the most impressive testimony was given by the UC Davis entomologist. Her testimony was clear, easy for the jury to understand, and not easily impeached by the defense. And there was still the question of the 5,400 miles put on Brother's rental car. The defense tried to claim that mistakes in mileage records are commonly made by rental companies. Sure, numbers can be transposed or someone could read a number wrong, but it's a stretch to say that a 5,000-mile mistake is a normal occurrence. Vincent Brothers decided to take the stand in his own defense. It did not go well. It had been well established that Brothers had a history of deception, and he tried to use this skill while on the stand. In total, he lied over 40 times while answering the prosecution's questions and was caught in most of them. In the end, the jury believed that Vincent Brothers had the motive, means, and opportunity to commit the murders. They found him guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, His conviction also carried the special circumstance of multiple murder, making him eligible for the death penalty. On May 29, 2007, Vincent Brothers was sentenced to death. He now resides on San Quentin's death row. Vincent Brothers' only surviving child spoke at his sentencing. Margaret Kern Brothers, 18 years old at the time of the trial, told of the horror she experienced upon learning that all her siblings had been brutally murdered and the pain she'd endured ever since learning that her father was their killer. At the end of her statement, she told the judge she no longer claimed Vincent Brothers as her father and from that day forward would only use the name Margaret Kern. Joni Harper, her three children Marquez, Lindsay, and Marshall, and Ernestine Harper were laid to rest after a joint funeral that was held at the Bakersfield Convention Center. Hundreds of friends, family members, acquaintances, and even strangers attended to place flowers on the four white caskets lined up in a row and to say their final goodbyes. Baby Marshall was placed in his mother's casket, cradled in her arms. Two of Ernestine's sons, ministers Robert and Eddie Harper, gave eulogies. Offer Rollins, the exoneree who was freed from prison, in part due to the efforts of Ernestine Harper, also spoke. Through tears, he told of the impact Ernestine's love and support made on him. Quote, I will never forget when she just took a moment of her time to make a change and make a difference in one person's life, Rollins said. Four of Ernestine and Joni Harper's surviving relatives, Eddie L. Harper Sr., Linda Harper, Robert Harper, and Elaine Byrd, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Vincent Brothers in July 2005. The amount of the suit was not disclosed. It was only revealed to be, quote, in excess of $25,000 and also asked for compensation for burial expenses. The family told reporters that they only filed a lawsuit to ensure that no money from Joni Harper's estate would go to her murderer. They wanted to make sure that any money would be distributed to Joni Harper's stepdaughter, brother's sole surviving child, Margaret Kern. So why did a well-respected pillar of the community murder his entire family? Could it have been for something as inconsequential as financial reasons? Was he taking revenge on his estranged wife for daring to insist he support his children? And how could an educator who spent his career in the service of helping children so brutally and callously snuff out the life of his own flesh-and-blood children? I believe that, for Vincent Brothers, what was most important to him was the admiration, respect, and accolades he received from his students, colleagues, and community. The respect he received from others motivated him in the work he did with children. Brothers moved up quickly from a beloved teacher to an administrator and was lauded by the community for his dedication as an educator. There are newspaper articles and even videos showcasing Brothers' community service efforts that were aired on local television news programs. Brothers, I believed considered his public image of great importance, and craved the admiration he received from the community. But within his private relationships, Brothers was not so admired. In private, he showed his true colors to his partners, as a liar, a philanderer, an absent parent, and an abusive spouse. When he was called on his bad behavior, he lashed out quickly and violently. He simply wanted to be rid of the responsibilities that went along with being a husband and father, a job which didn't fulfill his narcissistic need for unconditional love and admiration, even though undeserved. Friends and family members of Joni Harper reported seeing brothers behave pleasantly towards his children, but I read no reports that he displayed great love or even deep connection to his children. He hadn't bothered to be present for at least two of their births. So although it seems unfathomable that a father could dispense of his children in such a cold and brutal way, Vincent Brothers is one of those rare types of killers, the family annihilator, who thinks nothing of the age or innocence of their victims. In their evil minds, to wipe out an entire family, including their own children, is just a means to their selfish end of freedom from familial and financial responsibility. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy. Don't forget, you can get episodes early and ad-free in a couple of different ways. You can become a Patreon member for as little as $2 per month for ad-free episodes, bonus content, merchandise mailed to you, and more. Or, if you're a Stitcher Premium member, you can listen to Once Upon a Crime ad-free there as well. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime or stitcher.com slash premium to get more information. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.